Hey guys, before we get into the episode, you all know I'm a huge fan of fashion and I have been ever since I was a little girl. And my first job, by the way, was actually at Macy's. And my love for fashion began when I started there because I worked in the fragrance department, but of course my eye was always on the clothes and the makeup and everything related to style. But here's the thing, my relationship with Macy's didn't end once my days of asking people walking by if they wanted a sample of the latest scents came to an end. Nearly 20 years later, I still find myself choosing Macy's time and time again for literally everything. It's become a really beautiful full circle moment that they've been such amazing supporters of our show for so long. And when it comes to shopping, they have everything you need, whether I need a last minute outfit or Kevin needs a last minute outfit for our friend's wedding. We always head to Macy's. They've got us covered. So if you're in need of some retail therapy, perhaps, or looking to spruce up your home or your lifestyle, check out Macy's friends. I've curated a list of some of my favorite items that have helped me upgrade so many parts of my life, really my fashion the most, but of course home and baby and so much more. So check the link in the description and happy shopping Hill Squad. I'm on a journey to heal and get better in all areas of life. And I want to do it with you. Welcome to Heal Squad by Maria Menunos, where we improve and heal all parts of our lives, most importantly, our health. Heal Squad by Maria Menunos, your life improvement series starts now. Hello, hello, Heal Squad. Welcome back. Hope you're having a great day wherever you are in this crazy, beautiful world. We got a great episode lined up for you today, but first, our quote of the day. I always say the greatest cost of leading is the cost of paving the way. And that, my friends, is from Kathy Juisty. So Heel Squad, today we are talking about the big C word, the word that one day may affect your life. It's already affected my life, as you all know, and it will affect the lives of one out of two people worldwide. The word we're talking about, you guessed it, is cancer. The first thing we do when we get this diagnosis is usually we run straight to Google and go down an endless hole of, uh, honestly, information that can be really overwhelming and scary to help you and everyone else who has been affected by this disease not feel so intimidated and alone. We have two-time cancer survivor and founder of the Multiple Myeloma Research Foundation, Kathy Justy, here today to share her journey. Not only is she going to walk us through her personal journey with cancer, but she's also going to share snippets from her new book that I consider now to be a Bible for your cancer journey. It's called Fatal to Fearless, 12 Steps to Beating Cancer in a Broken Medical System that will help you if and when cancer becomes a reality in the life of someone you love or even yourself. In part one, we're going to be talking about how Kathy's cancer journey unfolded, how it affected those around her, and just how she made really crucial changes to her life when she received this diagnosis. And then in part two, tomorrow, you'll hear about the 12 steps that she covered in her book, Fatal to Fearless. And we are going to uncover the inspiration behind Kathy's book, its mission to demystify the cancer journey and the medical system, which is so important. We know we do this here every single day. And it seeks to transform the daunting process of diagnosis into a path illuminated with hope, understanding, and practical guidance. Without further ado, here is my chat with Kathy. Um, you've definitely been really busy since last time I saw you. How have you been? I've been great. I'm so happy to get everything in writing and get this book out the door. <laughs> it's such an important book. 
I'm telling yeah. everyone I know that they need to get this. Uh, in fact, even this morning over breakfast, I was telling my dad's caregiver, whose mom is going through cancer right now, I said, you need this. Everyone needs this. Yeah. Um, we'll get into deeper discussions on all of that. But let's go back to when you got your second cancer diagnosis. Mm-hmm. How did you go from a state of disbelief because you've already now beaten something called multiple myeloma, which 25 years ago was super rare and incurable, right? Right. And then you get a second cancer diagnosis. So how do you go from that kind of state of confusion, disbelief um, to again, picking up the ball and being like, all right, I got to do this. You're, you're, as you say, the mindset of determination and action. Yeah. From WTF to WTD. Yeah, WTF to WTD. Well, I think having gone through the journey with multiple myeloma, which was so fatal and so challenging, um, and then understanding from my journey with multiple myeloma that I was at high risk of breast cancer. And I realized I was high risk, not because I carried a BRCA gene or something like that, it turned out I was high risk because my identical twin sister got breast cancer. And when I spoke with um, the breast surgeon, she basically had said to me, you had radiation to your ribs. And it was done a while back when they didn't protect um, the chest wall as much as they can today. And so she said, you're just at risk because of the radiation from your myeloma. So because of that, you know, and I refer to that story in the book, knowing I was at high risk, instead of just going to a regular OBGYN, I then said, okay, I need to get to a breast surgeon and an office where they literally see breast cancer all the time. And then from that, I ended up alternating doing, you know, the typical mammogram, but then also the MRI. So I know this sounds crazy, Maria, but in some ways, because I knew I was high risk, and they kept seeing, you know, small things on the mammogram or the MRIs over time. I just knew at some point they were going to find something. I just, I just had a feeling about it. I think it's part of being high risk. So when she actually came back and said, we found something, it's super early. In some, this weird way, I was almost relieved. Like, okay, here we are. Let's get now it over with. we're going to be done with this. And I have to I'll move through the treatment and figure out what the best approach is going to be. Wow. So were they finding lesions along the way? Is that what you were referring to? So, you know, over time they would find like a small, um, you know, like a small centimeter approach and they would go, okay, we have to go in and initially they would do a needle biopsy, try to do a needle biopsy. But this sounds crazy too, but when you have breast cancer, it's tough to be really, really flat chested and tough to be large chested. I happen to be on the first side. So when they actually go in to do the needle biopsies and you're in the machine and everything, it was really hard for them to do it. I would have to go back and do a surgical biopsy every time they were doing that. It was just, it's just one of those fluky things. And why you and I always say every patient is different. Because if every time you go back, you have to do a surgical biopsy, every time they find something in your MRI, it gives you a different sense. Like when they finally find something, you're thinking, I can't keep playing this game of going in, having the surgery done, coming back out, waiting for the results. At some point, you look a little 
crazy physically anyway. So I was like, I'm just going to move forward and have the double mastectomy. I have a question. When they biopsy those lesions, did those lesions eventually become cancer? I always worry about biopsies. Yeah. So I think what happens with, and again, this is what happens with very early stage cancers and why it's always tough to know what to do because you want to get you know, it's considered cancer. So for us, we don't want that in our body when you're, I'm a high risk patient. I don't have the best immune system because I had done a stem cell transplant for my multiple myeloma. So yeah, it can turn into, you know, cancer cells and you don't want everything sitting there in your body. You just don't. So for me, I felt like I needed to move toward an aggressive approach. But again, everybody's different. When you get an early stage diagnosis like that, as my surgical oncologist said, there's no right or wrong. It's just what's right for you. Yeah, and and if you do the double mastectomy, you don't have to do chemo and radiation, right? That's correct. That was the other part of the decision. Again, you know, we're all different, but I watched my identical twin sister who has stage three breast cancer. She's been on the aromatase inhibitors. It has been tough on her and they don't want to take her off of them. So she's been on them for years and years. She has neuropathy. She has trouble walking. It inhibits her life. And just all of these decisions coming into me and it just led me to a certain decision for myself, which is great for me. It may not be the best decision for somebody else because again, we're all different. Yeah. Can you share kind of the impact um that a major disease like this has on a patient, but also the family and and vice versa, because for you guys, just like with us, we had multiple patients in our family. Um, yeah. It's it's a lot. It's so much. And I, Maria, it's funny, when I was writing the book, I kind of had, you know, the coaching of what are the steps you need to take to handle cancer well as a patient. But when I was writing the book, number one, I was dealing with breast cancer, which was somewhat ironic that now I'm I'm writing a book on the medical system and now I'm in it again, you know, many years later and going, it hasn't improved that much. And the other thing was I had started a journal for my 18 month old daughter when I got multiple myeloma. And now I had 26 journals, one for every year I never expected to live. So in order for me to write the book, I had to go back and read all the journals when I read the journals, I, I so wanted to be able to say to you, oh, look at me, I did it great, a life of no regrets, aren't I amazing? And it wasn't like that. I was reading all these journals and thinking, what a toll mm-hmm. my cancer journey has had on everybody around me, from my children to my husband to my friends. So all of a sudden you come back and you're like, wow, being a caregiver, especially for extended periods of time. And so I started looking it up and it turns out Every year, there are 2 million new cancer patients. And every year, there are 3 to 5 million new caregivers. And on average, in oncology, caregivers put in 32 hours per week, like another full-time job. And they give up so much, and they're very likely to move toward depression, anxiety on their own. And illness themselves. Yes, they're, they're exhausted. Yeah. So, and they're, you know, they're worried about their jobs. And so all of a sudden, you know, when I'm dealing with this second diagnosis, I will tell you, it was heavy on my mind because I felt like my family had already been through so much 
and I really just wanted to be done. And um, unfortunately, it didn't work that way. I ended up with many infections, and it ended up being a long journey in breast cancer too. But it it takes a toll, and if the patient and family and friends don't realize that, it's a problem. It's why we really had to cover it extensively in the book. When you're on the go 24-7 like me, guys, finding ways to make life easier is so important for my health and sanity. (laughs) And that's exactly what my friends at Macy's do for me. From working there as a teenager to now going to them for so many of my daily essentials, it's been my go-to for so many years. And having everything in one place is such a time saver for me. With being a first-time mom, for a while now, as you know, I've had plenty of those and being able to rely on them for all the things has been amazing. Plus having everything in one place has made being a new mom just a little bit easier for me. So I know we're all focusing on our families, our health, hopefully our jobs and everything in between, but it's time to make your life a little easier. And to help you out, I've curated all of my essentials from Macy's for you and the whole fam. All the details are in the show notes below, or you can just click the link in the description to get your hands on them too. I have some new picks on there. This little bomber jacket, this little black dress. You're gonna love it. All right, friends, let's talk about something we all do. Snack. Trust me, I've definitely overindulged in the past, but as you know, I am focused on my health these days. And I think I found the healthier snack that you don't have to lose out on the flavor. And it's definitely become my go-to. It first came into the house because of Kevin. He was obsessed with wonderful pistachios. And then I got addicted. And now it's in my travel bag. I don't leave home without it. It's in our glove compartments because they don't melt. Right now, my favorite flavor is the sweet chili flavor. It feels like some of the naughtier kind of snacks I used to use where I used to lick my fingers after. Now I lick them and I feel safer. Um, Plus, Wonderful Pistachios is one of the highest protein nuts. Each one ounce serving has six grams of protein, giving you over 10% of your daily value. That's crazy, guys. So if you're looking for the perfect snack, trust me and head over to www.wonderfulpistachios.com to snag a bag of Wonderful Pistachios. You're going to love them. I remember my mom always struggling with her hair. It's frizzy Maria, my mom would say in her Greek accent. Tiehis, what do you have? I tried so hard to find her products. I wish I could share these products I'm using now with her because I know she would be so happy to finally have good hair days. I've always believed that hair is a woman's best accessory. And with Way's new anti-frizz cream, you can ensure that your hair always looks its best without the frizz stealing the spotlight. It's a lightweight cream that not only provides immediate frizz control, but also helps prevent heat damage. And get this, it lasts up to 72 hours. That's three whole days of frizz-free, gorgeous hair. Way seriously has some of my favorite products for taming the frizz. Pro tip, one of my biggest discoveries is using the Way hair oil on the ends of my hair before I dry it. Let me tell you, it's a game changer. Once it's dry, my hair looks so smooth and polished. I don't even need to do anything else. It is incredible. I love it. Frizz free up your schedule with Way. Go to the Way, T-H-E-O-U-A-I.com and enter the promo code Heel Squad for 15% off any product. That's the Way, T-H-E-O-U-A-I.com, promo code Heel Squad. Trust me, you won't regret it. So... Speaking of family and the support from your husband during this journey, I know that I obviously couldn't have gone through everything that I went through without my husband, Kevin, and he's been my rock through all of our diagnoses in our family. And for any single Heal Squad supporter out there listening, wishing for their boo to do everything with them and help them in their tough times, eHarmony has an amazing compatibility quiz that may just be the best place to find your life partner or your Kevin. With eHarmony's compatibility quiz, you'll embark on a remarkable adventure of self-discovery 
revealing your true personality traits that helps you meet individuals who appreciate and adore the real you. So you can head over to eHarmony.com and find your partner in life and in health. Um, also, when you were mentioning your book, um, Kathy, and rethinking what matters for me, eliminating anything that takes time away from my family is so important to me. Uh, with Athena being born, I really have relied on online shopping to buy a lot of the things that I need for her so that I can spend my time with her rather than driving everywhere and going and picking things out. So luckily, having had a relationship with Macy's for as long as I have, I knew that Macy's was going to be my saving grace. So I have everything that I need um, from home to baby. And I have a lot of my curated picks on Macy's.com forward slash heel squad for anybody who is interested. You can take a look there. They have everything you need under one roof and we are grateful to them for that. I mean, when they said through thick and thin, they really meant it. Um, I feel you on that because I, I felt the same way when I got the pancreas tumor diagnosis last year. I'm like, how much more can Kevin and my dad take? How much more can the people around me, my loved ones, handle, right? Because yeah. there's so many people that it affects in your in your life. And it's like, again, everyone's coming to the hospital. Again, we're having to keep it a secret. Again, we're having to do this. It's it's so much. And I, I felt so bad for them. And it it's a journey, unfortunately. And, you know, what I keep telling people now is we need to read books like this, yeah. listen to shows like this, because... As you said in the book, one in two people will face cancer. And mm-hmm. so it's, it's it, by the way, I think the odds are better to get cancer than the flu now. Like, let's look up the statistics on the flu. I don't think it's one in two. It's pretty crazy that you think, everybody thinks they're invincible. Like you're not going to get it. And the truth is, the odds are it's going to get somebody, you or somebody very close to you that you mm-hmm. love deeply, and it's going to change your life. And I do agree with you because I've listened I've listened to so many shows and I learned so much on relationships and things like that. That's really what a, a lot of what I was doing over the past year. But at the end of the day, many people assume that you're healthy. And, you know, there's no family out there that's not dealing with some sort of health issue. You know, it can be cancer, it can be Alzheimer's, it can be MS, there's so many. And so I think being empathetic to the family, the caregiver, the patient, it's really important just to say it's tough. And let's try to all speak up, speak what, you know, what's important to us and get it out there. Help each other. And, And really, for me, it's about empowering yourself with knowledge, because one of my favorite parts, and let me just get to it, and then I'll, I'll ask you all the other things I have to say, is it's just in your intro, because you really laid it out for people. The road to my cure was not an easy one to walk, let alone run as fast as possible. I felt encumbered by a system that didn't have my death sentence in mind, a system that could take its time while mine was running out. This is something I'm trying to share all the time with people. I had to grow a new spine, as it were, and learn a new dialect that may as well have been a foreign language. I mean, let me continue. More than half of people don't understand basic aspects of the healthcare system. And when you bring a forbidding diagnosis into the fold of such healthcare illiteracy, you can imagine the trouble that looms and what's at stake. A life. 
The system is deplorably fragmented, bureaucratic, and exceedingly complex, shaped by many different needs and incentives, and it does not play to benefit you and me who are left wasting time trying to work the system. I wrote, wow. Um, And then you talk about um, the CEO of American Society of Clinical Oncology, and you wrote, Mm -hmm. his rather strident point is well-intentioned because from that perspective, we can be inspired to lead ourselves and generate our own personal methods for making the system work for each and every one of us. If that doesn't say what we're dealing with in a nutshell, because I think that's the biggest problem is we don't understand what is. So I'm always like, let's understand what is. Mm-hmm. Here's what mm-hmm. Western medicine is good at. Here's what all the alternative is good at. Here's what you are really supposed to do. You really mm-hmm. have to be your quarterback, whether it's you or someone yeah. you love. You need a quarterback. You need someone who's going to like be running point. And that person, along with you, you're going to make judgments based on your gut instincts, on what you feel is right for yourself, not just laying your care at anybody's doorstep and thinking that they have more than 15 minutes to take care of you because they don't. Once you understand what is and that the system is broken, it's not perfect. Everyone goes in thinking it's perfect and then they get mad. It's like, this is just how it is. So I think it's such a huge service that you're doing to share all of this with people because we need to know, we need to educate ourselves because we are going to end up in a situation. No matter what you think or what you believe, you're going to end up in a situation, whether you're the patient or the caregiver. It's one of the two, because you just yeah. said one and two will get cancer. Mm-hmm. So that means you are the person you love, unfortunately. Yeah. So let's learn how to navigate this system. Let's learn how to, to do it before. It's better to be prepared and not have had the opportunity, as they yeah. say. So I fully, fully... Um, believe that that's what we have to do now. We have to play proactive, a proactive game. Yeah. The system is, unfortunately, and I saw this, you know, dealing with myeloma when I was 37 and then dealing with early stage breast cancer just recently, the system is not keeping up with the science at all. And so what happens is when I say that it's fragmented, like, and, and what I really want is patients to know it's not you. It, it's not you. It's the system. It's not even the doctors. They all have exactly. great intent. It's just the system. So the way it works is, of course, you're overwhelmed because if you're just looking at the clinical side of it, you're still trying to figure out a medical oncologist, a surgical oncologist, a radiation oncologist. You're trying to figure out all your docs. And then which centers are you going to? Add on all of the insurance issues. Add on which pharmaceutical companies, which treatments. Add on physical therapy if you have to do that. You are the one person who has to integrate all that. It's not like it's all sitting under one roof and you head to the mall and just go from one store to the next. You have to integrate it all. And that puts a huge burden on the patient. The second part that's so important is... This year alone, FDA approved 45 cancer drugs, 45. So that means the science, and we've seen this, like when you move from chemotherapy to targeted therapy to immunotherapy, like the science is moving at breakneck speed. So for a patient, you have to make really good decisions and you have to be aware of what's out there now. And when you only get on average 16 minutes with your oncologist, that means you're doing the research and your caregiver has to do it with you. And then the third part of why it's so broken is because 
there's no transparency. Like it's really hard for us to know who's doing the absolute best work, what treatments are working the best way, what combinations, how do you sequence them? So all of these things really get to the patient. And then, you know, if you're not covered appropriately for insurance, you're going to get high out-of-pocket costs. And then you're going to get into financial toxicity. So everybody says, oh, we put the patient at the center. You know, a pharmaceutical company may say that, an academic center may say that. And they do. They put the patient at the center of their universe. But there's this huge universe that we still have to integrate. And I think it's overwhelming. So the whole point of, especially the first part of the book, is to take you from that moment of WTF and paralysis to say, we've got this. Here's where you go first. Like, here's your first step. And you detail it so intensely. I mean, even just down to the websites, like if it's .gov, (laughs) it means this. If it's .org, it means this. Here are the questions to ask of these organizations. What, you know, resources can you provide? I didn't even know that. And by the way, there's so many free things out there like in LA we yeah. have this organization called We Spark and they give free reiki and acupuncture and massage therapies they do all this stuff but people don't know because mm-hmm. when you get diagnosed you go into your universe and it's called survive and and the world just shuts down around you and we don't have time to call PanCan and we don't even know to call PanCan if we need help. I'm very educated in all this and I didn't know about PanCan before I went into all of this. I luckily had EIF and my friends there, Lisa Paulson, who I can call and say, hey, help me find the best doctors. But we don't know that there's a process. We just go to the hospital, we get assigned to whoever, and then because they have a white lab coat, we trust them. And, or our buddy says, oh, I got the best referral for you. It's, you know, this guy's the best, this guy's the best. And you just listen to them because you're exhausted and you just say, okay, he's the best. And you go to that person. And so when I'm coaching people behind the scenes, I'm like, did you ask them how many of these surgeries they've performed? You know, have you asked to speak to patients that they've worked with before? And so, you know, we, I learned on the job as did you. But we're also really good facilitators of getting this info back out to people. And so that's why I'm so obsessed with this book. Um, As a first time mom with a baby, I'm always on the go, whether it's running errands, getting my coffee, going to doctor's appointments, or just spending quality time with little Athena. And that's why I rely on wonderful pistachios to keep me fueled and ready for anything, no matter where I am. Kevin even keeps us bag stashed in the nursery. (laughs) you know, for the nighttime hunger moments. Wonderful pistachios comes in a variety of flavors and sizes, making them the perfect snack to have literally any time, whether I'm enjoying them during a quick break in between taping this show or I'm on the go and it's in the diaper bag. I do carry it in my travel bag and they're in my car. At this point, when I'm leaving the house, I think keys, wallet, wonderful pistachios. (laughs) Bonus, wonderful pistachios is one of the highest protein nuts with six grams of protein in every one ounce serving. So on top of all that, They keep me feeling satisfied. I'm energized while I'm juggling all this crazy stuff in life. Next time you're looking for a convenient and guilt-free snack, head over to www.wonderfulpistachios.com and stock up on your favorite flavors today. Minus the sweet chili. Hey, Heal Squad. We have been on quite the journey together and we're hearing from so many of you just how much this show is helping you heal and get better. And it makes us feel so good. We love, love, love it. And we just ask that you don't keep it to yourself. Spread the message and share the show 
or your favorite episode with your friends. And if you want to help us even more, you can leave us a five-star rating and a comment on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and follow us on Instagram at Heel Squad. You can also DM us anytime because we love connecting with you. Kelsey is so great at making sure she responds to all of you. And finally, you can also join us on Patreon for our monthly live heel events with world-class healers and ad-free episodes exclusive only to Patreon and our Super Heel Squad for as little as $10 a month. So go to patreon.com backslash heel squad to join. Getting better isn't easy, friends, but as I say all the time, it's a whole lot easier if we can do it together. We love you all so much and we love doing this thing called life with you. When you look at this, you, you mentioned something about financial toxicity mm-hmm. and I'd love for you to share a little bit on that. So what happens um, is cancer patients, a lot of them skew over 65. So a lot of them can be covered by Medicare, right? And then they need supplemental insurance to go with that. So you have to really be on your game to make sure you're getting coverage that way. But in addition, a lot of patients have private insurance and some don't have insurance. The key to this whole process is you have to, if at all possible, stay in network. So what happens to a lot of patients, and by the way, this happened to me. I thought one of my doctors was in network. It turned out he was not. And I got hit with all the out-of-pocket costs on that. So one of the things I recommend in the book is before you go too far, you have to look at your coverage, whether it's Medicare, private insurance, or whatever it may be. Don't just stop and say, oh, I think I'm covered or ask the doctor's office, get on the phone with your insurance coverage and ask them, talk with them, and then find out who's in network, who's not in network. And if you can stay in network, do it. Now, if you can get outside to get a second opinion, you and I are both huge advocates of get a second opinion, especially at a really good cancer center is helpful. Insurance companies almost always will cover that. So you have to make sure you're doing it and get that research done quickly. But watch the out-of-pocket expenses because it's just another huge stress on the patient and family. Yeah, And that's why another reason I always say to them too, is like, if you are like someone who has to be at work every day and, and you have to work through your entire cancer diagnosis and it happens, it does happen, then you're not headed, you know, to a city an hour away two hours away for your treatment, you are likely going to have to be right at the community center. It's perfectly fine. Like you said, find out how many patients they see like you and try to get to the highest volume community center. But there are ways you can get second opinions and have other people help oversee your care. Mm -hmm. And I think the other comment that you and I both agree on is these foundations, disease foundations, Find them quickly. All you have to do is go in and do a search on pancreatic and patient foundation or research foundation. Pancan will come right up. Luscartan will come right up. All of them will come up. And so you have to realize these are resources available to you. Again, don't just look at it online. Call them. Because if you actually call Pancan or you call the Multiple Myeloma Research Foundation, you'll find out they have navigators They have case managers that will help you through all of this and they're underutilized sometimes. Like to me, that that should be a huge part of everything that these disease foundations are doing. And so I think that's like for 
what I always say, it's the short-term solution to yeah. a long-term problem with the healthcare system. We need much better navigation. The book helps get you there, you know, with Fatal to Fearless, but I'm also a big believer in finding the people within the hospital, the research foundations that can also support you on the navigation side. Yeah. You know, I feel like I read somewhere where you said even you needed help the second time around. Like you forget the things that you've already learned. Um, I'll tell you, even just reading it, I remembered, oh, shit, I got to get a second opinion on my liver. And now I I reached out to PanCan because of you. Because I was like, oh, wait, she's right. I should just call PanCan and ask Pam Markhart, you know, who I should see for a second opinion on my liver. So you know, even when you've gone through it, sometimes you forget, like if you're a new mom, um, and you ask a mom who's been, you know, was a mom six years ago, a new mom, you forget, they're like, shit, I forget, I forget how how I got this or did that or whatever. So um, going back to dealing with another diagnosis and the guilt of having your family have to kind of rally around you again, how did you handle that? What did you do? Was there anything you can share that helped um, you and your family in that time? Well, you've known me for a few years. So you like, we're similar in that it's like, okay, we have stuff to do. Just go get it done. I'm not going to waste time. I'm just going to focus, 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 get stuff done. And so to actually write the book while dealing with breast cancer and reading these journals, I have to say, there was a point where I was kind of saying to myself, I don't even like me. Like, I don't like me. I'm, I'm not that nice of a person. And I think I put my family through a lot. And so the more I was writing the book, the more I was talking with them and having these really honest conversations. I mean, remember, my daughter was 18 months old when I was diagnosed with multiple myeloma. She's now 29. My son wasn't even born, and now he's 26. Well. And, you know, my husband has been with me for a really, really long time, but it's almost like cancer has been in our relationship forever. And it was funny. And same with my sister. I actually asked them if they felt like they deserved an apology. And they and you read in the book, they did. They felt like I had put them through a lot. And it wasn't intentional. It wasn't intentional. It's just that sometimes the cancer card trumps all. It does. It really does. And I think people, they worry about you and they don't want to rock the boat. And so they give up a lot. Yeah. And their stuff doesn't matter as much. Like I see it even with Kevin sometimes. I'm like, Kevin, I'll need help with something. And I'm like, this trumps that, unfortunately. (laughs) like, (laughs) And it's It's awful. Yeah. And then you feel so badly. So the more I was reading, when you read it over 26 years, you're thinking, okay, you know what? I... You're so scared of the cancer coming back. That was what happened with me and my lumma. You're scared of when when am I going to start treatment? Now I've got to get through this treatment. You get through the treatment and you know a lot of patients get depressed after the the big treatment stuff is over. And then you're still worried about relapse. I mean, myeloma is still a fatal cancer. You know, pancreatic is a tough cancer. So is glioblastoma. So these are tough cancers. You don't wake up every morning dwelling on it, but it's not like you sit and say, oh, well, lucky me, this cancer's cured. So I think from that standpoint, reading all the journals and realizing the highs and lows of the roller coaster, like you said, some test results come back a little wacky. 
it doesn't necessarily mean that anything's wrong, but it sets you off on yet another roller coaster ride. And you're trying not to take your family on it, but of course you do. So I think when I read it, I Maria, I will be honest with you, I spent a lot of time studying like John Gottman, Brene Brown, you know, Maya Shankar, you know, Kate Bowler. Like I read a lot of their stuff, which is much more of the personal, emotional side. And I really tried to learn, like, how do I make sure I'm paying attention to what they need? It was a real wake-up call for me. And how do I not take advantage and make sure I'm getting them talking? Like, for my husband now, I'll be like, I'll say, well, of course I'll take you to that appointment. And I'll think to myself, you don't need to take me to that appointment. Like, I'm fine. Like, I, I feel perfectly yeah. fine. I can get to that appointment. I started I doing that now, too. Company, <laughs> but you don't need to take me. Because at the end of the day, they have jobs. You I know. know. They're working. They're busy. <laughs> and so, of course, they're going to offer. But I'm realizing, don't take them up all the time. And my conversation with my family is much more, if you have something on your mind or something to say, you can say it even though I'm dealing with cancer. Like you have the right to say it. And so I think that's a big point of the book is everybody has to speak up. And then the other point that I really make on the caregiving side is for a patient, you have to write down your needs. And the needs I try to explain to people are, I'm worried about who's going to get my kids to school, worried about who's going to take care of my dad, worried about the finances, you know, Who's going to get the groceries? Like those are your needs and you need people that will help you do that. But there's another side, which is your wants. And for me, the want when I was diagnosed with myeloma was a big one, which was wanting to have another child and, you know, being willing to go through IVF and all of that to have David. That was a huge want for me. And in order to do that well, that meant Paul and I had to go through counseling and say, what would this mean for him when he's now has two little ones and I'm gone? Like, how do we want to handle all that? And so I think knowing both of those things is really important. And I think you have to do it when you're diagnosed and sit down, take the time to write all that out. I think it's also a good time to do it when you're in stable disease and say, what did I just learn from all this? You know, what have I learned is important to me and how do I hold on to it? Because the whole time I was writing these journals, I was always saying, family first, family first, family first. But I was working 60 hours a week. I was traveling everywhere. And so I'm sure there were many times when they didn't feel first. Wow. Yeah, I um, I feel like I've been doing that with Kevin recently where um, I'll have an appointment and I really want him to come. And he'll kind of, he'll look at me like, I know I'm supposed to, I know I should, I will. And then I'll say, I'm fine. I can do it by myself. <laughs> right. And you know you can. And, and in yeah. all honesty, sometimes it just feels good. Like, it's not a big deal. You mm-hmm. go. You would have loved his well, company. We've already it's heard the worst so many times. Like, we, we're, we're good at it now. We can hear it yeah. and we'll be fine. But, yes. um, but yeah, I think. But it is where you want them to speak up and say, hey, if I don't have to go, I've got work to do. Mm-hmm. And, and then you can say, and I'm fine doing it. But there is this element of people really want to be supportive and helpful. And sometimes the caregivers do it at such a cost to themselves Mm -hmm. that resentment builds. And then you find that out the hard way and you don't want to do that. Yeah. I want to go back to one quick thing because I have a piece of advice um, with the financial toxicity and insurance companies. If that's not your strength, 
um, there's always someone in your family or one of your yeah. friends that's a good bulldog that you mm-hmm. can ask for help from. So when my mom was diagnosed with glioblastoma, we were on the East Coast. And I quickly realized, wait, I'm, I'm going to have to keep working to support everybody. We got to get back to the West Coast so I can work and take care of her. Mm-hmm. And I flew her home. Now, I had already years before this made sure that my parents were covered on both coasts because they would travel back and forth. I get to the West coast. We're scheduling her stuff for Cedars and I hear that she's not covered and I get on the phone with them and the woman yelled at me (laughs) and she goes, how could you take your mother to the West coast when she, there are plenty of doctors on the East coast. She's not covered. And I go, excuse me. And so I said, first of all, I just found out my mom might be dying I go, and you're coming at me like this. I said, we're about to go, you know, we're days away from maybe having surgery. You're telling me we're not covered. Anyway, long story short, at some point, I was like, okay, these people are going to really hear it from me. I'm going to call the the higher ups. I'm going to really go for it. And I said, you know what? Not a good use of my time. I have just the person. My cousin, Nikki, worked for Blue Cross Blue Shield. She's very good with, edu- oh, with insurance. And she's a bulldog. I said, I'm going to eat popcorn and M&Ms and watch her take them down. (laughs) And she did. And then, by the way, when she was done with them, I had uh, I hired a lawyer because they were still trying to be tough with us. I hired a lawyer and then I ate some more popcorn and candy and watched him take them down. And then that was it. They didn't want to hear from us ever again. But you you don't have to be good at everything. You have to be good at delegating. And I really believe when you're diagnosed with something like this, you need someone who's going to lead that can delegate because Mm -hmm. even delegating as much as I did as my mom's caretaker, look at how much happened to me after. I still got ill. It was still a lot. And I had a team. My husband was a rock and he was so amazing and my dad and everybody around us. So you really have to delegate. It's it's for your own health, too. Yeah, it's why I say like, write down the needs, write down the wants, and then look at your friends and family. Don't limit it to one person because people really are willing to help. The best way you can help caregivers is to be very specific, like give them the tasks that work for them, yeah. that you know they're gonna be good at, that aren't gonna be as much work for them. And and then let them do their jobs with you and for you, and then be grateful. Be yeah. grateful for what they're doing. If you can keep it as simple as that, it goes a long way. I think. We have a tendency to put the entire caregiving piece on a partner and that gets really challenging. Mm-hmm. So the more you can spread it out, the better it is for everybody. And yeah. if you can't find somebody to help you, there are people in the hospitals. And again, at the you know, foundations, the patient foundations, they have mentors. Like we have myeloma mentors and they're people that have been through similar process. They're this around the same age. They may be working they may be interested in having a child. Like it could be anything, but we're going to match you up with somebody that you can talk to. And I think some of those things become really important too. Yeah. How did your diagnosis change your perspective on time? So I think when I was diagnosed with multiple myeloma and in that situation, given three years to live, everything was so urgent. Like all I kept thinking was, I've got to get my life in order. I really want to give Nicole a sibling. So I need to have this child. Like it was really important for me to leave Paul, Nicole and David in a really safe Mm 
lovely place together. And everything I did was it had to be done today. Absolutely today. Because, you know, I only have so much time. And so I did that. And in all honesty, I stayed urgent like that even years and years out, because when I was running the Multiple Myeloma Research Foundation, again, we're looking for new drugs. So, you know, if it's in a phase one trial, we need it moving to phase two and phase three into the market as soon as possible. And I would be banging the table, like, how are we going to do this? How are we going to get it done? And all of that. It is only since writing the book and reading the journals that I've actually, at the age of 65 now, so I would say to people, don't wait this long, (laughs) that I've actually said to myself, okay, it is so important to be in the moment. And I think that's, you know, I really tried um, when I was juggling work and, but I was trying to save my life and thousands of patients' lives, you know, and you're trying to do that while you're living your life. And so I spent a lot of time saving my life not a lot of time being in the moment and living it. And I think now I've switched. Now it's, okay, I can write this. You and I can talk with patients and help them to understand what to do. And that's a gift. But at the same time, I have to be able to sit in the moment with my kids and my husband and friends and just enjoy it. Just enjoy it. Because it's short. You you and I both know all too well. Like, it's fleeting. Yeah. It's really fleeting. I know I even had a conversation with my husband this weekend. He he was lamenting about somebody in our business that just keeps blocking me from jobs or has blocked me from jobs my whole career. And he just was lamenting. He he keeps all of these people in his head that have hurt me throughout the years. And I said to him, I go, Kev, I go, I don't want you to carry this anymore. Yeah. I said, first of all, what's for me comes to me. I said, and if God didn't throw enough bricks at my head to say health, 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 wellness, 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 I said, those things weren't right for me. Yes, for ego and for what we think I'm supposed to do or be. And I got enough of it Mm -hmm. that helps me to be able to do what I do. So there was a purpose for it. Um, I said, but it, I said, I think that these people made agreements to come into my life and to be that block because that's not where I'm supposed to go. Right. And so um, I said, I am very, very happy where I am. And I said, because I've had so many of those moments where I literally was on the ledge with me or my mom, Mm -hmm. I know what's really important. And for me, as much time as I can have with Athena is important to me. My husband, my dad, my family, my friends, as many positive fun experiences it doesn't mean that i'm not going to still work i still work and i still do work a lot but it is not my priority like everything else is yeah and now you work at what you love right and if it brings you purpose in life then and you love doing it then it shows and so like you know what you and i do now which is taking what we know and try to share it with as many people as possible to help them i think is critically important but you are right like at the end of the day you know every time you and I go for getting our test results back or scans back or whatever back you're still worried you still have the knot in your stomach Mm -hmm. and you're not sitting there thinking oh I wish I'd done more speaking you're thinking I I wish I'd spent more time with my family and my friends and that's it you know everybody says it it really is true and I always think to myself you shouldn't wait to get a cancer diagnosis 
to understand that family and friends really do come first. And it's just an important part of your life. Having purpose is amazing. That's amazing. But your family and friends matter the most. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, I, I kind of look at it all like that. I'm like, you know what, if I got another devastating diagnosis tomorrow, would I be happy that I was hustling and making all these other things happen? Or would I be happy that I spent the day with Athena yesterday, like right. watching her goo goo gaga and whatever? <laughs> I'm like, I, I know what I, what my answer is. And I'm living yeah. that answer as much as possible every yes. single day. Yeah. Um, so, um, Let's talk a little bit about progress in um, cancer research and all of that. I mean, what are some of the strategies or initiatives that you believe can help accelerate um, progress for people in these areas? And how do we how do we kind of even get involved in that process? Yeah. So the as you know, in the book, the way I organized it was. The first part of the book is about you've just been diagnosed. You know, what should you do? Because now you have to do the research. If you don't do the research, nobody's doing it for you. Mm -hmm. And the reason that's important is like you and I were saying before, the science is moving really fast. Like there's amazing new cancer drugs coming out. So you have to help figure that out. So in the book, send you to the right sites, send you to the right kind of disease foundations, teach you how to research the science really well. The second part of the book is about treatment. So if you remember, the importance of that is going in and saying, okay, where do I want to go? And so where you want to go depends on what kind of treatment you want to do. If you go to the community center, it's great because it's, it's convenient. And a lot of times there are really good community centers. But if you're also looking at where the greatest science is going on and you want to look at translational research and things like that, typically you're going to an academic medical center, you know, a teaching hospital and an NCI designated cancer center. There's like 70 of those, but they're just really well funded on the science side. So that becomes really important in the second part of the book, like where am I going and mm -hmm. why? When you do that, it's also about the testing. So you go through this and you say, I have in pancreatic a neuroendocrine tumor. And when I was diagnosed with multiple myeloma, I was like, I have a smoldering myeloma. So all these cancers keep getting broken down into smaller and smaller cancers. And over time, you have to do your standard testing. And a lot of that can be done at a community center, your blood test, your metabolic test, your imaging testing. But then you're going to switch over and do genomic or biomarker testing. And you can even do immune profiling. So that gets you to the testing point to know, okay, what exactly do I have in the world of precision medicine? And what is the best treatment for that? That brings me to the third T in um, the second part of the book, which is your treatment. Okay, the way treatment has evolved over time is from the chemotherapy that we all endured and I had during my stem cell transplant, but now it has moved to targeted therapies based off of the drugs being targeted to a specific genomic effort in your disease. And now what's exploding, just exploding, is immunotherapy. And so in myeloma, for example, we're looking at CAR-T technology, ADCs, bispecifics. Like there are so many drugs and clinical trials in the pipeline. Our patients' heads are just spinning. So again, the question becomes, what does the patient do in a situation like this? Because now we're in a different place than pancreatic. Pancreatic 
in glioblastoma are still searching desperately for new therapies. And again, you have to know the biology of that disease to get the therapies. In myeloma, we've spent so much time at the MMRF doing that kind of science that we have a really good understanding of the biology of the disease. We have 15 drugs already approved. But now for our patients, they don't know whether they should do a stem cell transplant, go to CAR-T, do one of these immune drugs. So again, navigation mm-hmm. becomes the key. The thing we're going to tell them is there are navigators at the MMR if you need to call them because they know exactly what trials are going on where. And there are navigators at the hospitals, you hope. And um, you've got to get help because it's overwhelming again. And every cancer is in a different stage. So they're all different depending on whether you understand the biology of the disease, whether you have new treatments emerging, or whether you have a lot of treatments, but you haven't figured out how to optimize them yet. But in every single situation, the short-term answer is giving people trusted information and allowing them to make really good decisions and getting them to the best treatment options possible. And I haven't even discussed clinical trials yet, but that's like the other huge burden for patients because if you want to search for them and you go to clinicaltrials.gov, you're just inundated with hundreds of studies and you're trying to study the inclusion, exclusion criteria. And it's just way over anybody's head, including my own. So that again, that's where the disease foundations can be helpful. Yeah, I mean, and that's where it gets so hard, because if it's over your head, and you've become such an expert in, in this, that's really overwhelming. So can you share a little bit of how you navigated the medical system while dealing with your diagnosis? With multiple myeloma and with breast cancer, it was really pretty much the same way. So um, first, I knew I had to do the research and I was comfortable doing the research, but like everybody else, I didn't have time to go down rabbit holes. So fortunately, I knew which sites to go to. I actually tested this a lot when I was writing the book to make sure I really believed the sites I was recommending were the best sites for patients. So as you know, it was cancer.net, which is ASCO, um, cancer.gov, which is the National Cancer Institute, and then cancer.org, which is the American Cancer Society. Those are your general websites when you just get diagnosed and you're trying to figure out what am I doing? They're very trusted, reasonable sites to go to. And I I did that. I mean, first I was looking at Harrison's and the Merck Manual because we didn't have the internet back then. But in today's world, you're not doing that so much. Mm-hmm. You're just going online. I think it's, Maria, 89% of people Google their cancer diagnosis and 40% do it on the day they see it on their portal. So they're moving fast to, to just get in and start Googling. And that's where they get down to the rabbit holes. And then I would say to them, okay, now put exactly what you have. So if you're going to say newly diagnosed smoldering multiple myeloma, it's going to look different than stage three or metastatic cancer or whatever. And so you have to put that in and be very specific and then see what comes up and very, make sure you're focusing on a .org to begin with. And then get to one of the disease foundations to help you. And that will help lead you to, okay, where am I going and why? You have to figure out by talking to your insurance company and your the doctor that diagnosed you, where do you wanna go and what cancer center is gonna be the best one for you? 
And then you've got to decide, okay, which diagnostic test do I want to make sure I know the precision of my specific cancer? And then what is the treatment going to be? And once you're in that go mode of treatment, it's building your caregiving team all around you. But I always tell people that one of the surprises of managing cancer, I think, is when you get through the treatment and now you're on the other side of remission or stable disease, because that is, interestingly, the highest time of depression. Because you've been in go mode and all you're thinking about is your appointments and getting through and getting through and getting through and now it's over and you're like, what am I doing? Mm. And so people really struggle with that pace, um, that place. And so we, you and I both see people ringing the bell like, okay, I'm done. I'm in remission, but you're not, it's never really over. You know, I wish I could tell people it's over and it does, the fear diminishes over time, but you do ring that bell or high five your doc on the way out the door of your last treatment, but you're still worried. You know, you still in the back of your mind think it might come back. How will I know? So in situations like that, it's really understanding minimal residual disease. How deep is your remission? Um, what is the likelihood of relapse? Like, What is minimal residual disease? I've never heard anybody say that before. Yeah. Oh, so that is, you know, what they can do now, Maria, again, like this is where the science, it's, it hasn't just moved so fast in new drug um, drugs for patients, but it's also moved much faster in this space. So now in today's world, they can actually start to know individual cancer cells are in your body. And so when they actually look at, you know, when the cancer cell sheds some of the genetic material, now we have testing that can start to pick up on that like that. So with in time, they can do blood testing and monitor people. We do it right now in myeloma through a, a bone marrow biopsy, but you can start doing it now in blood testing. And you'll know whether a few lurking cancer cells are, are there or not. So being monitored is really important. And how do they tell the difference? Sure academic centers doing that. Sorry, how do they tell the difference between the fact that we all supposedly have cancer cells in our bodies? It's just whether they activate or not. How do they tell the difference between those and the bad ones? The bad ones have a blue, like it's a blueprint. They actually know, because they'll have done genomics on you before, they'll actually know what they're exactly what they're looking for. Mm. And when they spot it on this test, then they say, okay, this is, this is the cancer and we at least have to be aware of it. So the monitoring is really important because if you're in a deep remission, but the cells start appearing again, at least they can get you back into treatment quickly. Could they do that instead of a PET scan? Could you do that blood work instead? A lot of times they do it hand in hand. So you're similar to me, like uh, for myeloma, we can do PET scans and PET scans are great in myeloma. They help you to know when the disease is going active. You're going to light up when they start to see those spots. These tests can be done in conjunction with that. Yeah, they're, they're well, really Well, because I, I have to do PET scans and I'm like, I really don't want to do them. I'm like, these people show up in hazmat suits. They don't want to even touch the shit, let alone breathe it or take it. And you're making me drink it? I'm like, maybe some of the stuff we're seeing in my liver is because of the PET scans. And so and I've been the, trying desperately is, to avoid it. So I'm like, maybe I could do this blood work instead. I think what will happen is these new MRD tests are like a, the wave of the future. And there's a lot of companies working on it. And hopefully they're going to make it more specific, more accessible. Um, and it's it'll be a gift to patients. Like I, I write in the book, like I for my kids, when they see their primary care doctor now, they know all their risks. They know 
every cancer this family has ever faced. Their primary care doctor knows all of that, all that information. She will make sure that they're all getting screened. But over time, the next generation is probably going to be able to do this kind of testing and be aware of whether something's going on or not. So the, the science, again, is moving really fast. So if you want to do this blood work, what do you do? What, what do you ask for? Well, there's tests that you can do and you can order them yourself um, and or through you, well, really through your doctor, but you have to pay for it. It's not covered by insurance. Mm-hmm. So that's the problem is it can be really expensive and only available to the people that can afford it. Over time, what has to happen is the tests get more sensitive. As you know, insurance companies always worry about tons of false positives. And now you put patients through a lot of anxiety on a false positive. So they're hoping these tests become super duper accurate. And, you know, I think for many of us, we're like, okay, but we still want to know about this. Mm -hmm. (laughs) If we can get it, we want to have access to it. Especially, I think, when you're a patient or a family that's at high risk, you want to use every tool in the toolbox. Yeah. To round out this first part, Kathy, can you talk about kind of any any of your pivotal kind of moments that helped you beat cancer? I would say getting to the best center and the best doctors was absolutely pivotal. And as you read in the book, um, my being treated at Dana-Farber with Ken Anderson, the great thing about that was he was a translational doctor. So You know, he's in the clinic, but he has an entire research team working with him. So this was long before genomic testing was routine for patients like it is today. But back then, you know, I was able to raise my hand and my identical twin was raising her hand and saying, look, we're twins. Like, there must be something you can learn from us. And I think that was a huge gift was that Ken was able to do a lot of really good work on me and understand I had certain translocations. And again, I was way ahead of the curve on precision medicine. Because of that, when a new drug in myeloma emerged, a a proteasome inhibitor, it turned out those drugs are actually very helpful for the translocation I had. And so I really do believe my induction therapy in myeloma was an incredible opportunity for me. You're using a lot of words I don't know. What's trans translocation and induction? What are all those words you just oh, used? Oh, sure. So, so when when doctors do genetic testing on patients, what they're looking for is changes in the genetic material. So, in that situation, it can be your chromosome, for example. So, in myeloma, you know what we would do is look and say, what's happening in the genetic material that looks different. My chromosomes four and 14 switched, and that becomes what you call translocation. And it just tells you that there's something unusual genomically about my myeloma. And by looking at all the patients with myeloma that had that specific translocation, it turned out they were very high-risk patients. That put me at higher risk than anybody else. And so that's important to know. It was hard for me to know, but at the same time, when drug companies go to make drugs, they're looking at drugs that target those genomic aberrations. So you can then end up with a targeted therapy or learn that a certain class of drugs works specifically for your genomic subtype. And that becomes a gift to the patient. 
So, you know, one of the things that happens is the more patients are donating their samples and the more those samples go into tissue banks for each disease, glioblastoma, pancreatic, myeloma, whatever it may be, the more the scientists have access to understand the biology of the disease and then the more the pharmaceutical companies can start to understand what kind of drugs they need to make to target the genome or the immune system. It's a really complex process, wow. but bottom line is the more samples, the more data, the faster the cure. How do you handle <laughs> when you hear something so deadly and you hear it's so rare and now you're hearing things are switching and then it's even worse. How do you mentally handle that and, and stay as you know, I, I don't, and I shouldn't even say stay as positive as you are because I don't know what you were like in those moments, but I've, I've just known who you are since then. And you're a gangster and you're a hustler and you just are such a fighter and, and you just have done so much to help save people's lives. But when you're looking over the, you know, down the barrel and you're, you're hearing the worst of the worst of the worst, how does one navigate that feeling? I think when you're looking at it that way, you have to have faith in, I wouldn't say the medical system because you and I both know it's broken, but I would say you have to have faith in the science. And so what we're finding now is that, you know, when I was diagnosed at 37, the science was moving really slowly. It's like, maybe a stem cell transplant, let's study it more. I mean, years in the making to even make that a standard of care. But now where we are is an abundance of immunotherapies that they're really testing across all cancers. So I feel like, especially in today's world, the science is moving really fast. And so I think that's where the hope comes into play. Like I'm blown away at the new ideas that are emerging all the time. I think the biggest challenge is every patient getting access to that science, which is why you and I are here. It's like, if you don't fight for it, if you don't know that it's in a clinical trial, if you don't know that it's available to you, if you don't ask your insurance company to cover it, it's not going to happen. You have to do it. And I feel badly about that, but there's no other way around it. It's yeah. you, it's your life, it's your body. You got to do it because you care more than anybody else does. Well, and then that takes me to a hopeless place because we're exhausted, we're sick. We are dealing with who knows in our house, uh, a bad partner, spouse, a troubled kid, someone you know else might be ill in the family. You don't have the finances that you need. You're drowning already. Mm -hmm. And now you're telling me I have to go study up and figure out the clinical trials and now I gotta go fight. I don't even have enough fight for me. Right. And like you said, you have to fight for you, but find people that will fight for you. So that's where, you know, what you and I are trying to do is here's 12 steps. Like, I'm going to tell you, don't waste hours. Like, if you go in and put in breast cancer, you get 2 billion hits. Yeah. What are you going to do with that? So I'm saying to you, don't, don't do it. Just go to the three websites I recommend and then go to breastcancer.org and then start to do your research call them, let them help you find out who has navigators, who has case managers, work with those people and grab their time. Like, like I said, I feel like this 
country has to do a much better job. If they can't fix the healthcare system, they need to at least support patients with navigation systems. Yeah. We have to have them. Otherwise, we're, we're drowning, like so, you said. So for people who are listening, I feel like these navigators, they're really your shortcuts, right? Like Kathy yeah. and I are navigators for people. So right. I'm always making myself available to help people behind the scenes because I know I have the shortcuts. I know that I can help shortcut the mental, the physical, the spirit, like all of it for yeah. them and say, okay, this is exactly how you're going to be feeling potentially. I mean, everybody's different, but this is, I can, I can corroborate a lot of things and also, um, shortcut everything so that they know what to do fast rather than having to, you know, because if you haven't read a book like this in advance, you don't know that you have right. to ask these doctors these questions and that you have to find the best of the best. And so, yeah, it's, it's a lot. It's, it's really important. And I think that's where, again, patients have to understand that these resources are available. Like you said, so many people don't know that these organizations are there to help them. They don't know that the American Society of Clinical Oncology has a beautiful website, you know, cancer.net, that's really, really good for patients. And if you just sign up, they're going to send you information all the time. They don't know that they can call the National Cancer Institute 800 number. And somebody's going to get on the line and at least help you. And they don't realize, like, even at the Myeloma Research Foundation, we have full-time navigators. They are nurses. They're medically trained. Like, these are really smart people. And they'll work with you. But I'm always blown away that we don't have more people calling. It just surprises me. And I think yeah. it's like you said, there's, there's a real awareness issue. One thing that may help to change it, as I'm noticing, you know, this is you know, working on all of this, that um, Medicare is now looking to cover navigation in oncology. And so there's a program going on with the American Cancer Society and others to try to figure out this short-term issue. And I am 100% supportive because I think you really have to do it. Again, in some of these situations, the navigators are not healthcare workers. They're just smart people that know all the resources available to you. But in other situations, they are healthcare workers. I mean, most of the navigators at the MMRF are nurses that have worked at major cancer centers. Yeah, they know this field. Yeah, they've they know done it. They know, they know like how the, to help you. Yeah, they've dealt with it forever, so they know and they can help accelerate your your process, which is the biggest thing. So we're gonna pick up tomorrow with part two, where we're gonna go through all of the steps with Kathy, so that we can kind of shortcut a little of this for you. And then you can go to the book for more. Of course, the book is called Fatal to Fearless. And then my favorite 12 steps to beating cancer in a broken medical system. I love that you had the courage to even say that because I know that's scary. <laughs> All right, friends, thank you for being with us. I hope that that conversation was helpful to you and to caregivers alike. Uh, tomorrow, we're going to go through the 12 steps. I am so excited for you guys to hear that conversation. In the meantime, be nice people, make good choices, and be present. This podcast and all related content published or distributed by or on behalf of Maria Menunos or mariamenunos.com is for informational purposes only and may include information that is general in nature and that is not specific to you.
Any information or opinions expressed or contained herein are not intended to serve as or replace medical advice, nor to diagnose, prescribe, or treat any disease, condition, illness, or injury, and you should consult the healthcare professional of your choice regarding all matters concerning your health, including before beginning any exercise, weight loss, or healthcare program. If you have or suspect you may have a healthcare emergency, please contact a qualified healthcare professional for treatment. Any information or opinions provided by a guest expert or host featured within website or on company's podcast are their own, not those of Maria Menounos or the company. Accordingly, Maria Menounos and the company cannot be responsible for any results or consequences or actions you may take based on information or opinions.